You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Um, and it's been a long journey. We've been, you've been a partner of ours for a long time, and we are very grateful for your support. Now, we're just going to jump right in um, for the sake of time. We've got a full service today. Um, it is the season of Lent. Does anybody know what that means? Long. It's the time of long waiting, of of preparation, in a sense, right? Throughout the church, worldwide, people take the weeks that lead up to Easter. We call it Lent. Now, a lot of people give up stuff for Lent. Uh, last year, you know, they did a Twitter search, kind of see what people are kind of hashtagging, that they're giving up what for Lent. Um, at the top of the list, people were giving up alcohol. Um, also, close to the top of the list, people were giving up social media, like we're going to not use social media for this amount of time. Um, people were giving up things like chocolate or candy or other things that they like or generally kind of find themselves really attached to. Some people down the list said they were giving up Donald Trump. That was somewhere on the list of the most popular tweets um, of people that, things that people were giving up for Lent. Now, Whatever people are giving up for Lent, the reason why people give things up for Lent is because it allows us to focus. It allows us to reorient ourselves to thinking about the cross. It's the lead up to the cross. It is the road to the cross. It's something that prepares us for what comes in a few weeks' time when we celebrate Easter. It orients our hearts toward hearing once again and hearing afresh the promise of the victory of Christ on the cross and the promise of new life. Today, this is what we're going to reflect on. We're going to reflect on this road to the cross, which is both narrow and wide. Because at the cross, there is an interesting paradox in which the way to God is narrow Yet the love of God is wide, and both of those are contained within the message of the cross. This gives us an opportunity, then, to examine ourselves, to reflect on how we interact with the message of Jesus, how we interact with the message of God's love. I think it offers us some challenges, which we're going to get to in a minute. So we begin with the words of Jesus on the cross as recorded in Luke chapter 23. While he is up there hanging next to two criminals, he has been mocked, he has been flogged, he has been hurt. The crowds who once were following him around have turned against him. The leaders, the religious leaders have turned against him. The authorities have turned against him. He is being made fun of. They put a placard above his head, kind of mocking him, saying, here is the, here's the king, the quote-unquote king. Earlier, they put him in these royal-looking robes to sort of mock his claim. 
And yet, on the cross, he utters these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Let's pray as we launch into this. Lord, I thank you so much that forgiveness came even when we didn't know we needed it. That your grace is so abundant and your love is so wide and deep that in the midst of pain and torture and embarrassment and mockery and shame, forgiveness was already on your lips. Lord, be with us as we travel through the scriptures today and speak to us, challenge us, encourage us, remind us of things we already know. Lord, would you draw us closer to you as we look at your words. In Christ's name, amen. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Herein lies a particular paradox, because in the words of Jesus, there is grace and forgiveness and love that abounds. Yet the moment on the cross itself is something that is rather narrow, if you think about it. The first side of the paradox is that the way to God is narrow. It goes straight through the cross. If you look back in Matthew Matthew 7, in his recording of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of different teachings. And one of the things that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount is that, you, you may be very familiar with this, that the gate is narrow. And that many people will search and search out for this wider gate. But he says, you know, no. There's a narrowness there. Few will find it. It reminds us that early in other parts of Jesus' writing, in Jesus' teaching, he says things like, I am the way, in John chapter 14, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, comes to God, except through me. We're reminded of times when Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to come to the kingdom of God. This seems like a very narrow message. It goes through Jesus and it's difficult to enter in. It is difficult. It is narrow. But when we look at Matthew chapter chapter 7... We need to remember that Jesus has a particular audience that he's talking to, right? Who were Jesus' primary adversaries, so to speak, throughout the Gospels? Not rhetorical, come on. Pharisees. They're always this group of people Jesus is talking to and saying, oh, you know, don't be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees are doing this. These are the people who are setting up these rules. And Jesus says, no, 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 not like that. Let's not be like that. Their way is not the way. But it's interesting because the Pharisees themselves were the religiously upright people. They were the theologians. I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes I mock theologians, even though I'm you know, a mission, the, mission theology. But sometimes we get so many ideas in our head. We wrap up all these philosophies and ideas about what is important and how we need to conceptualize God or how we to think about what exactly happens in the atonement or what happens in this or that or this sort of obscure piece of theology. The 
the Pharisees were people that built up all these ideas that surrounded the message of God and built up rules to protect those ideas and then built up more rules to protect the rules that were protecting the ideas. These were the Pharisees. These were people that in the culture seemed like the right people, right? They stood there and prayed. They gave money to the temple. They kept themselves ceremonially clean. They did the right things. They taught people how to follow these ways and said, this is the way of God. Yet Jesus stands in opposition with these people. That's really strange. In the verses that follow Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where he talks about the narrow and the wide gate, Jesus turns his attention towards false teachers and said, you know, there are people that are false prophets who proclaim certain things, but look at the evidence in their lives, and that'll give you something that you need to know. And then come some very chilling words, starting in chapter 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Not everybody who calls out to God, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, that verse used to haunt me as a kid. I think, but I cry out, Lord, Lord. What's that mean about me? He continues, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we say the right things? Didn't we point other people to you? And in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, says Jesus, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. That is scary stuff when you think about it, because then it starts to make you think, what, you know, what about me? I mean, I grew up in this church. I grew up believing the right things, right? I grew up thinking the right things. I grew up, you know, I'm in middle school. I invited people to church. I invited the people that, you know, some of my friends wouldn't really hang out with them because they were kind of a rough kid. And I remember one of my friends decided, sure, why not? I'll come. And it was the most bizarre experience I ever had in youth group. Where one of my friends, and he was kind of the rougher kid at, at my middle school, in our, in our junior high, and he decided to come anyway. That was really strange. It made me feel kind of a little bit weird and uncomfortable because, like, well, now what do I do? He's here. You know, how do I interact with him? How do I interact with my friends that are here? It was kind of strange. I was that kid. I was out there inviting people, but yet something wasn't quite right. It never really clicked in my heart. And there were many times in high school and also in college where I really struggled with my faith. And really struggled to see, you know, is I, I can say all the right things, I can profess all the right things, but is this really, is this really it? Indeed, the way is narrow, but not narrow in the way that the Pharisees set up. You see, the Pharisees were setting up a narrowness that relied on adherence to rules. Because I'll be honest, as a high school kid, as a junior high kid, if it was just by obeying the rules, I could get by. I could do just fine. 
And many of us can do just fine following the rules. But if we're doing that, we miss out on what the narrowness of the gospel actually is. Because the narrowness of the gospel is not predicated on you and I and our behavior and our ability to follow the rules. If the narrowness of the gospel was the pharisaical narrowness of the gospel, then the way wouldn't be narrow, the way would be shut. Because no one can qualify. It is narrow in the sense that it goes through Jesus and through Jesus alone. And friends, that is narrow enough. The way of the cross is different from the way of the Pharisees, of the false teachers who prop up all these reasons why this person can't be in and this person Rather, it is a narrowness that says, you know, it all comes down to the cross, and this is where it all happens. And this is where we all must go, on our road to the cross. When I think about the narrowness of the Pharisees, I think about it like this. I think there's a narrowness of a walkway, right? You can stand up very nice and tall. You can look, you know, you know, be proud of yourself as you walk through. Not many people can kind of go through this path. It's kind of a dark alley. Not a lot of people will find it, but I found it. And so I kind of walk and saunter all the way through like I'm really cool and really up, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. And other people don't really know, but that's okay. But I think that's a false image, the narrow gate. There's another way of looking at something that's narrow, that's far wider, but to walk through it, you've got to get down on your knees, and you've got to duck, and you've got to lower yourself, and a lot of people can lower themselves and go through together. It's narrow in a different sense, you know? It's like not narrow this way, it's narrow this way. There's a different kind of narrowness to the cross. Yes, it goes through one gate. Yes, it goes through Jesus. But the narrowness is not about whether or not we can stand up tall and be so proud of ourselves. Rather, we are in, it's insisted upon us that we must humble ourselves, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. Get on our knees. Lower ourselves. It ain't about you. It's about what Jesus did. That's a different kind of narrowness. Now, the other side of the paradox is that God's love is wide. There's that song, right? Anybody already thinking of it? Uh, start singing, start singing. And wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide, right? We sing this song. It's a common children's song. We sing it in Sunday school when we're little. There's a fountain flowing, is deep and wide. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the people of Ephesus, says this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp, power to grasp how wide and long 
and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, writing to the church of Ephesus is an interesting task because it's a very cosmopolitan group of churches. There are Hellenists or Greek people who are following Jesus. There are Jewish people following Jesus. There are also Jewish proselytes. That means people who were Gentiles who were not Jewish but went through Jewish custom and Jewish ritual to become Jewish. In other words, the men were circumcised and became Jewish to follow the way. And there were significant disagreements in the early church about what to do about that very topic, whether or not a Gentile could be a follower of Jesus and still be a Gentile, not become a proselyte, go through the process of circumcision. Man, think about that, doing that as an adult. Just horrifying to think about. That's what the Jewish community was expecting of the men who were to be proselytes, to become a part of their community. Not only did you have to believe the right things, you had to behave a certain way and adopt the Jewish cultural norms to become a part of the community. And then in, in, Ephesians, in the letter to the Ephesians, earlier in chapter 2, Paul says, talks about the reconciliation, that Jesus reconciles Gentile and Jew together. That becoming a part of the way, he starts to argue, first, also, and you hear some of this in Acts and some of the other letters, that it's not about the cultural practices or cultural purity. But there is something bigger. And so when he is writing to the Ephesians and says that you would know how deep and wide and high and long the love of God is, there's something there that would probably tickle the hearts of the Gentile readers to say, I have heard it said that I'm on the outside looking in. But the love of God is wide enough to encompass me too. That's a powerful message that Paul is trying to communicate to the Ephesian church. The wording of Ephesians 3 becomes clarified when we understand the context of the divide that exists in the church in that day. Being a follower of Jesus is not about adapting to certain cultural norms. Rather, it's about embracing the wide love of God. This kind of breadth and width is scattered throughout the Gospels of Jesus' life and teaching. We see, for example, that invitation comes before understanding. Right? The disciples were invited to follow Jesus before they knew anything about him. In fact, all the way through the Gospels, it seems like they don't really understand it all anyway. And yet they were the people who were going out and inviting people. They were the ones going out and serving. They were the ones going out and telling people about Jesus. But they didn't even get it. You find that even at the end. They're kind of scared and they run away. And they hide and they deny. But yet Jesus invited them far before they could understand a thing. In the story of the 
unclean woman or the adulterous woman, do you notice that Jesus, there's, there's a woman who's been caught in adultery, and there's a crowd getting ready to throw stones, which was, according to the law, how they would deal with sins such as that. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus first go up to the woman and say, what did you do? Are you sorry? You're going to repent? No! Jesus goes up and begins to defend her. Provides protection from the mob far before there is any repentance that we know of. Or even far before he even calls her to repentance. Because afterwards he does say, get up and sin no more. He does call for her to go through discipleship and life change. But the protection that God offers her precedes her repentance. Isn't that interesting? Forgiveness comes before recognition. And this is where we come back to Jesus' words on the cross. Jesus says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Before they even knew they were sinning, forgive them. Before they knew before they understood sin, before they understood what, that, what they were doing was not okay, Lord, forgive them. This is the width and breadth of the love of God. God's love precedes and exceeds our understanding. It precedes our understanding in that even before we understood we needed it, God still loved us and protected us and forgave. And it exceeds our understanding because often, as Christians, as Christ followers, our expectation of what others need to do to follow Jesus is so limited. We become pharisaical. We begin to expect that people have to first understand these sets of principles before they can become Christians before they can start walking on the road of following Christ. We say that people, no, you need to stop this behavior, and then you can follow Jesus. No, 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 no. You, you need to understand these theological principles, these truths, and then you can start to follow Jesus. But the Jesus of the Gospels shows us a different way, because the love preceded those things. Forgiveness and protection preceded understanding. So in the Gospels, on the cross, we see that there is a paradox. Because on the one hand, the way is narrow. It goes through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Only Christ and his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for our salvation a rather narrow look at life. Yet it is also wide and inviting for anyone who would come on this journey. This is a paradox, but not a contradiction. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. There's a difference between contradictions and paradoxes. On the one hand, contradictions conflict, right? They have conflicting truth claims. Paradoxes, on the other hand, may have two things that seem like they're different, but they work together 
to reveal a deeper mystery or a deeper truth. So let's play a game. Okay, I'm going to say, I'm going to give you a situation, and you tell me contradiction or paradox. Okay, I, I know we're getting a little bit academic here, but let's play this game anyway. Let's say I cut open a watermelon. I say there are no black seeds in this watermelon. It's a nice seedless watermelon. Seedless doesn't actually mean seedless. It's just the seeds are chewable. Curtis looks at the same watermelon and says, there are black seeds in it. Paradox or contradiction? Contradiction. They can't both be true. It's not possible. There either are black seeds in it or there are not black seeds in it, right? I say I'm taller than Curtis. You all look at him and you know he's taller than me. Contradiction or paradox? I say, man, my kids drive me crazy. They sometimes feel like the bane of my existence. But I love them deeply. Paradox, right? I love fried chicken. And I do. I like Popeyes. More than KFC. We can get into that argument later. I love fried chicken. I hate fried chicken. Contradiction or paradox? Paradox. Because it could very well be that I love it so much, but I know if I eat it so much that I just hate it. I hate how much I love it. You know, like, keep me away from that bucket of chicken because I'm going to keep eating it, right? I hate it at the same time I love it, right? That's a paradox. It reveals something deeper about what's true about my relationship with fried chicken, right? Paradoxes reveal something deeper some deeper truth that's hidden behind there. On the one hand, God's way is very narrow. It goes through Jesus Christ. Yet on the other hand, it is extremely wide because God's arms are open wide to embrace anyone who would come and follow him. This is a paradox. It reveals a deeper mystery. God forgave already. It was done and accomplished on the cross. And it doesn't mean that repentance is not necessary. It doesn't mean that we, is, we, we set aside discipleship and right living and learning about the ideas and who God is and learn about things like theology and, and what it is that Jesus actually did on the cross. It doesn't mean that we ignore all those things. All it means is that we allow the love of God to precede all of that. We don't want to end up in something called cheap grace, which Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about, where you just have grace and accept grace and then you just do whatever you want. That's not what we're talking about here. Rather, what we're talking about is not allowing ourselves to erect barriers and construct all these rules to surround what it means to follow Jesus in the first place. So what does it mean for us today as we think about preparing ourselves for Easter in this Lenten season, as we reflect and contemplate our own status, our own position as it relates to the cross. I think there's a few ways that we can apply this. And the first is that maybe you're the kind of person that thinks of the narrowness of the, that doesn't like to think about the narrowness of the cross. And we need to rediscover the uniqueness of Christ. 
It is in our culture, it is in the ether, for us to, eh, you know, whatever you want to do is okay. Eh, all the other ways, all the ways are good, they're fine. It is the dominant narrative that you can't just nail down to one thing. And I'm speaking specifically to the younger folks. This is the kind of stuff that our friends will say as you get older and enter into these conversations. This is the kind of narrative that, is, that all of our TV shows are steeped in, our movies are steeped in. This is the message that our world is telling us. That Christ and the cross is not unique. It's not the way. I mean, it's okay if you follow that. But So maybe for some of us, this is a season for us to rediscover the uniqueness that is Jesus. The uniqueness that is the cross. Perhaps your challenge is to dig deeper into the mystery of grace and forgiveness. Never mind all the extra dressing that Christians often put around Christianity. But just come back to Jesus and the cross. This is something that I had to do in high school. I really struggled with whether or not God was there. And whether or not this was the way. And man, I went through some really dark times sitting there you know, in my shorts in the middle of the night. You know, my parents didn't know. I was kind of hanging out there in the backyard and just thinking and contemplating and getting angry. And, and I needed to rediscover that indeed God was there and that the message of the cross was worth it because it was unique. Perhaps the challenge is that we need to recognize our own narrowness because our narrowness is not the same as the narrowness of the cross. It is so easy for Christ followers to fall into the same trap that the Pharisees did. Whenever I read the Gospels and I read the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, more often than not, I am reminded of how like the Pharisees I am. Because I expect people to do things my way before they can follow Jesus. We set up expectations of who is in and who is out as if we were sitting at the seat of the judge to decide who can follow Jesus. So like the Pharisees, we're called to recognize and repent for making the gospel a different kind of narrow. Or perhaps like many other Christians who want to always say that God's love is for everyone, but yet we have set up different kinds of barriers, even sometimes unbeknownst to ourselves. And we need to repent of creating the barriers, as I mentioned. We need to make sure that we are not setting up expectations of our friends, of our co-workers, of our neighbors, of our family. Following Jesus is not simply a single prayer that one at one point in their life. It is a journey. It is a path, like in the picture, a road to the cross. And it's a long journey. And we fall on the journey, and we stumble, and that's okay, because God's love is wide enough to handle that. 
We don't need to set up barriers or fences on the side of the road. That's not our job. Our job is to welcome people onto it and journey with us. As well-intentioned as the Pharisees were, they set up these laws and precepts. And their faith, I believe, was in the way itself rather than in the, where the way was pointing. Does that make sense? If our focus is on the destination, then our focus is on the love of God and forgiveness. But if our focus is on the way itself, then we're trapped in this sort of coming up with ideas and precepts rather than focusing on the person. Does that make sense? We focus on the way too much instead of where the way points. And that causes division and barriers. Miroslav Volf, a theologian who's written a lot about forgiveness and exclusion, writes this. He says, Inscribed in every heart of God's grace is the rule that we can be its recipients only if we do not resist being made into its agents. What has happened to us, that is, receiving God's grace, must be done by us, extending God's grace and love. Having been embraced by God, we must make space for others in ourselves and to invite them in, even our enemies. The path is narrow. It goes through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. But let not the followers of Christ get in the way of bringing other people onto the path. Let not Christians in their attempt to witness somehow communicate that people must earn God's love by getting their life straight first or telling them that you're wrong about this and you need to change this and you need to do this. That sets up the wrong kind of gospel as if the gospel was earned. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through Jesus. Yet God invites anyone and everyone into his relationship, into that relationship journey to receive grace, to experience God's love, and to be transformed by the Spirit. In this season of Lent, let's refocus our eyes on Christ and on Christ alone. And let us clear the path for others to do the same. Let's pray.